Holy Spirit, come, open our hearts to you, our minds to your truth, and transform us into true disciples following the King of Kings. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Good morning. It's cold. It's very cold. Last March, a group of us from Park Street were on a mission trip to a very cold place in southern Siberia. It was cold. We visited a museum that had been a prison for women, traitors during the Soviet era in the 40s and 50s under Joseph Stalin. And it reminded me of a story I'd heard earlier about Stalin when he wanted to make a point to his leaders about power. He called for a live chicken and held it forcibly in one hand. With the other hand, he slowly began to pluck the feathers from that chicken. The chicken struggled to escape, but in vain, and he continued to pluck the chicken, denude it completely. And in a gentle voice, he said to his leaders, now watch this. He put the chicken on the floor, held some breadcrumbs in his hand, and walked away. Incredulously, the fear-crazed chicken, denuded, followed after him and clung to his trouser leg. Stalin bent down and threw out some more crumbs and moved away, and the chicken followed him around the room. The leaders were aghast, dumbfounded, and Stalin said, this is the way to rule people. People are like that chicken. Did you see the way that chicken followed me even though I had inflicted terrible pain upon it? People are like that chicken. If you inflict painful torture on them, they will follow you for food wherever you go for the rest of their life. That's power. Terrible power. Evil power. There are many different kinds of power. Power that comes out of a barrel of a gun. Power that comes out of a ballot box. Power that comes out of a bank account. Power that comes from words. Proverbs 12, 18. The word of the wise brings healing. Or the power in the hands of Hebrew midwives who delivered babies on the Nile River. What kind of power do you have? How do you use your power? What kind of power do you need? What kind of power do we need in, in the kingdom? We're looking today and this few months at the book of Mark. And the book of Mark can be summarized in three words. Strong man suffers. The first half is about the power, the strong man, his authority, and the second half, suffering. And Mark combines two unrelated stories in our passage this morning in a technique called a Markan sandwich, one about a family and one about leaders. And we see a particular kind of power, a spiritual power, power of the Holy Spirit. It's a power that equips 
It's a power that delivers, and it's a power that reorients. It's a power that equips ordinary people, verses 13 to 20, 21. It's a power that delivers from evil, verses 22 to 30. And it's a power that reorients ordinary life, verses 31 to 35. So look at verse 13. The power to equip ordinary people. Jesus goes up the mountainside and calls to himself those he wanted. And they came to him, and he appointed 12, designating them disciples, apostles, that they may be with him, that he may send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. The first readers of this text would have been on tippy-toe. They would have woken up mountain. They would have seen mountains because they knew mountains were where God did big things. In Exodus 19 and 20, it was on the mountain. God revealed the Ten Commandments to Moses, the law. And here, the strong man on the mountain, he's on the mountain, Luke tells us in Luke 6, 12, all night in prayer to his father. Why? Because he's on the cusp. He's on the threshold of a new chapter. He has been preaching. He has been delivering. He has been exercising. And now this is a new moment in the history of his movement. He's launching a new endeavor on the mountain, the strong man, in this new exodus up the mountain. And when they see 12, they recognize that 12 is a reminder of the 12 tribes. But here, they're not the 12 tribes. This is the new Israel. This is the newly reconstituted Israel on the mountain with the strong man, that he has formed this new group. And what a group it is on the new exodus. Who else could pull together such a team? I mean, we have volcanic, tempestuous personalities. We have those progressives on the left. We have conservatives on the right. We have MSNBC people. We have Fox News people. We have people in the middle. We have people we know very little about. Who knows about Thaddeus and Bartholomew? People who were not rabbis and priests. People who were not CEOs or PhDs or people who had fancy profiles on LinkedIn or thousands of followers of Instagram. These were ordinary guys. And there was a traitor in the midst. He pulls them together. The world perhaps was not impressed, but Revelation 21, 14 tells us the names of the apostles of the Lamb were written on the foundation stone of the new Jerusalem. So the strong man equips ordinary people on the new exodus to the new Jerusalem in his endeavor. And notice what he does it for. Two things. He first of all invites them to himself to be with him. It's easy to skip over that in the reading. Easier still to forget about it in life. To be with him. Eric Erickson, the social psychologist, tells us that for infants to become adults, they must accomplish three things. They must develop intimacy. 
in their relationships, they must not be isolated, but have intimacy. They need to form an identity, to shape a character and a personality. Their intimacy must lead to their identity, lest there be role confusion in their life. And that, in time, will lead to industry rather than indolence of a productive and flourishing life. So intimacy, identity, and industry. And there's a parallel here with spiritual power, a parallel of maturation and development to be with him. It's the foundation stone. It's the building block upon which everything else is constructed. King David, the greatest king in Israel, confessed. He acknowledged for all his military and political skill. He said one thing, one thing. I desire of the Lord. This is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to inquire in the, in the temple of the Lord, to see his beauty in Psalm 27, 4, to be with him. After Europe had been Christianized, the tribes over a thousand years from 400 to 1400 AD in northern and western Europe, the tribes had been Christianized and the spiritual temperature was beginning to wane. Yes, there were cathedrals like Notre Dame in Paris. There were great universities with the professorships in the queens of the sciences of theology at Oxford and Cambridge. Yes, there were monasteries and there were churches and centers of intellectual endeavor across Europe. Yet, the spiritual temperature was neither hot nor cold. And it was in that context that one writer, Thomas Akempis, wrote a little gem, a little devotional classic that still speaks today called Imitation of Christ. It was written to a nominal people, and it's filled with aphorisms and short pithy sayings, things like, we love the things that flatter us, therefore we remain cold and sluggish. Well, he called ordinary people to himself. He called them that he might send them out to do what he had been doing, to preach. Paul tells Timothy, preach the word in season and out of season. Preach the word. And there's that self-evident element of preaching, of public proclamation from a pulpit perhaps, but it's public. But a recent book on the topic widens the scope of preaching. It helps us to understand that the communication of biblical truth is not restricted to a pulpit. It can be in ordinary conversation. Colossians 3.16, Paul tells the Colossians, let the word of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, that their conversation is to be seasoned with the word of God. It's to be nourished, to be enriched with the truth of Christ in ordinary interaction. But also, there is a way for preaching of a communication of biblical truth to be widened through the gifts of speaking. In 1 Peter 4, 10 to 11, Peter tells his audience, whatever gift you have received, you should use it. Administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should speak as speaking the very words of God. We may say that counseling or mentoring or instructing or blogging, all these are skills that can be infused, speaking not in their own authority, not for their own agenda, but as speaking the very words of God. So he equips to be with him, 
to communicate biblical truth, and then the difficult one, to be sent out to cast out demons. It's a controversial topic. Many today would see this as dealing with mental illness. And yet, if we read the Scriptures closely, we see Paul the Apostle says, we fight not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil. And perhaps in many ways, those many of us in the West are at a disadvantage in looking at texts like this. And our brothers and sisters from Africa and Asia and Latin America have far, far more familiarity with this. But if you go online, it's amazing what you can find. Hindu priests exorcising those with demons in the last year or so. Those within the charismatic or Pentecostal tradition within deliverance ministry. And within the Catholic Church, the position of exorcist is a legitimate position within the church ecclesiology. And every year the Vatican invites exorcists for training in Rome. It was kind of curious. I was looking for a connection between exorcism and congregationalists, and it was a little tricky to find anything. But if we read through history and the advance of the kingdom of God, we notice that exorcism is a part of it. St. Patrick, for example, read his confessions. He talks about the evangelization of Europe, of, of, of Ireland. And in doing so, he talks about Satan falling on him like a rock. And that it was the light of Christ that delivered him. Or Jerome, the biblical translator from Hebrew into Latin in Egypt. When he left the cities in Egypt, it wasn't so much that he was trying to avoid the flesh pots of sin, rather that he was engaging in spiritual warfare. Why? Because the desert was where the, where the demons were, the villages of, of Egypt was where the spiritual forces of darkness were. He was going out into that area. And Jesus said, if I cast out demons by the finger of God, the kingdom of God has come upon you. It's a legitimate ministry. He calls ordinary people to himself. And verse 22 to 30, he delivers from evil. He delivers from evil. We read that the scribes from Jerusalem came down and they said he's possessed by Beelzebub. It's by the prince of demons that he's casting out demons. And Jesus gathered them to himself and he spoke in parables. He said, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided, that house cannot stand. If Satan is opposed to himself and divided, he cannot stand. No one can enter a, a strong man's house and carry away his possessions unless he ties up the strong man. Then he can rob his house. Truly, I say to you, all sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. But whoever blasphemes the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He has committed an eternal sin. He said this because they said he has an evil spirit. This is the fifth conflict in Mark's gospel from chapter 2, verse 1 to chapter 3, verse 22. A local conflict between the strong man and the authorities. And notice what Mark does. He describes teachers of the law from Jerusalem, who come down from the capital city. Teachers of the law from Jerusalem. This is escalating the conflict from a local skirmish to a national crisis. Here the, the leaders of Israel are coming down 
and they see the miracles, they see the deliverance, they see the exorcisms, and they don't question that it happened, but they ascribe demonic power to the work of the Holy Spirit. And it's a reminder that miracles are no guarantee of faith. The spectacular is no guarantee of belief. Here we have the teachers of the temple. They're ceremonially pure. They're schooled in the Torah. They're well-versed in the traditions of the elders. And here they are, toe-to-toe, face-to-face with the strong man. The wonderful counselor, fully God and fully man, the Alpha and the Omega, the creator of the universe, and they see what he does, and they condemn it. It's demonic. There's a discussion in the literature about Beelzebub. Two Kings 1-2 cites the god of the Philistines in the city of Ekron as Beelzebub. And the Septuagint translates it as Lord of the Flies, and William Golding's book picks up that title. But in the original nuance there, there's Lord of the Dung, the Dung Lord. So what is it the leaders are saying? They're using the most offensive, derogatory language to condemn the Son of the Most Holy One. They're using a pagan, unclean, Gentile God reference, which in Jewish theology became a synonym for Satan. They're using that language to talk about this. Well, how does, he, how does he respond? He responds in three ways. Verse 22 to 23 to 26, he talks about logic. Verse 27, he gives the first parable of the gospel. Verse 28 to 30, he discusses blasphemy. The logic, he, he's saying, look, if what you say about Satan is true, then Satan should have destroyed himself. But here it is. He's alive and well, and yet people are delivered from him. How do you explain that? These, you've seen the evidence. Here's the data. Here are the facts. Your conclusions don't add up. So he tells them a parable. No one can enter a strong man's house and take away his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can rob his house. And there's a possible wordplay here between Matthew 10, 24, and 25, where the master of the house is connected to Beelzebub. And here he's playing on this lord of the house motif. But the point is clear. How can you get into a strong man's house unless you have greater power than the strong man? How in the world are you going to carry off his possessions unless you have that kind of power? Well, another reader of this text, Ricky Watts, sees here not just an isolated cross-reference to Matthew 10, but a further reference to Isaiah 49, which we had read earlier this morning. And in that passage, Israel is in Babylon under the oppressive force, culturally, politically, economically, of a foreign power. They're in exile, and they're crying out, we cannot, how can the captives be rescued from the tyrant? How can we be freed from this oppression and the answer, of course, is they cannot. They're helpless. 
unless Yahweh intervenes. And he says, the captives will be rescued from the tyrant. For thus says the Lord, I will contend with those who contend with you, and I will save your children. Then all flesh will know that I am the Lord your God, your Savior, your Redeemer, the strong one of Jacob. And so Isaiah is looking not only to deliverance from Babylon, not only to Yahweh intervening in this crisis in Babylon of the exile, but he's pointing to an even greater deliverance from an even, from an even worse, more terrible power that strangles and distorts and destroys people, the power of satanic forces of evil. And here in Mark 3, the strong man has come in the flesh to deliver. As he said, if I cast out demons by the finger of God, the kingdom of God has come upon you. Well, he goes on in his interaction with the leaders and talks about blasphemy. It's a very difficult passage. He says, you see a combination here of mercy and justice. It's quite extraordinary. He says, all sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. That's the mercy of God. If we confess with our hearts, we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. There is mercy for the repentance. And he says at the beginning of the gospel in chapter 1, repent and believe. Turn from your old life. Believe in the new life. Believe in the new way, the new exodus to the new Jerusalem on the way that we're going with this strong man on this journey through this gospel. But he says, but everyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They have committed, they're guilty of an eternal sin. Today, blasphemy evokes an emotional reaction, but in the Greco-Roman and Israelite times, it was a condemnation of those who with contempt treated the name of the deity dishonorably. Leviticus 24 has the capital punishment for this crime. And yet, there are many today with tender consciences, those in their soul deeply who wrestle, asking the question, have I blasphemed the Holy Spirit? Just this week, I was on the phone with a friend, a colleague, who was telling me of his mother, who for many, many years wrestled with this question in her heart. Had she blasphemed the Holy Spirit? And it's true that we're all sinners. We have all fallen short of the glory of God, that our hearts are deceitful above all things. And it's true that we may be aware of 2% of our sin, not the 98% that God sees. And yet it creates in some this question mark, have I committed that sin? And I think it's a fair response to say that if that is your situation, if you've asked that question, the chances are you have not because it comes from a tender conscience, earnestly and honestly coming before God. And blasphemy here is the informed, intentional contempt for the work of the Spirit in the face of overwhelming evidence. That's the biblical notion of blasphemy. Here we see these teachers of the law intentionally 
deliberately, in the face of all the data, all the data, all the evidence saying this is demonic. Now, this sin is something that leaders are susceptible to. It was true in the Old Testament. It's here true in Mark 3. And it's been the case throughout Christian history that leaders have often stood in the way. They have been the obstacle of the movements of God. And I think we can look at the text like this and say, this is a sober warning to us today. Well, the strong man with his spiritual power equips ordinary people. He delivers them from evil. And thirdly, he reorients ordinary life. At the end of the sandwich, his mother and brothers arrive standing outside. They ask someone to go inside to call him. And the crowd gathered around him tells him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and brothers, Jesus asked. Then looking at those sitting around him, he says, here are my mother, my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my mother, my brother, and my sister, and my, my mother. We might be forgiven for thinking that those with a biological relationship to the strong man have an inside track, a sort of shortcut into the kingdom of heaven. But we know from last week in looking at Mark 2 that those who were physically close to him were spiritually far away from him, those inside the house, and that those geographically far away on the roof who came down through the roof with the paralytic were geographically far away from him and yet spiritually close because of their faith. And there's certainly the case here in the text, looking at the prepositions in Greek, you can see that there is this play between insiders and outsiders going on. And we know that the disciples throughout the gospel themselves are obstacles very often, dull of heart, hard of hearing, hard of heart, not getting the message. They often come out in a very bad light in the gospel. Even Peter, the very leader of the group, in Mark 8, 33, is told, get behind me, Satan, you don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. But as we continue through Mark's gospel, we'll see this straightforward dichotomy becomes more complex. In the next chapter, there are certainly outsiders in Mark 4, 11, who come, who face severe judgment on the outside. But there are also outsiders in Mark 4, 33, who hear parables, who hear the word, but without explanation. And there are insiders who hear the parable, who hear the biblical truth, but don't truly hear it. In Mark 4, 9, Jesus says that he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And there are those who are cheek by jowl, who are close in the crowd, in the gathering, in the congregation, if you will, who are hearing in Mark 4.10, and yet are not disciples. But there are those, regardless of race or gender or background, who do the will of God, as in Mark 3.35, and are part of the kingdom of God. As Jesus said in Matthew 7, not everybody who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of God, but those who do the will of my Father is in heaven. The strong man disrupts ordinary life. He enters into their vortex, if you like, and he re-centers it around himself. So that the very center of their community, the center of their life, is no longer themselves or their work or something else. It becomes the person who is the very center of the universe. One who demands absolute loyalty, complete worship, 
and knowledge of him. He recenters their center of gravity. He equips ordinary people, he delivers them, and he reorders their universe with him at the center. Well, where does this leave us? In Mark's gospel, one of the big questions is, when will people recognize who the strong man is? At what point do they realize who they're dealing with? And it's not until the end of the book, chapter 15, verse 39, that we see an unlikely character who gets it, who understands what's going on. And it's not a rabbi, it's not a priest, it's not even an Israelite, it's a foreigner. And it, it, an unclean foreigner, and worse than that, an unclean foreigner who's an oppressor, and worse still, he's an unclean foreigner who's an oppressor who has blood on his hands. He's a Roman soldier. He looks up at the cross and he says, surely this man was the son of God. And it makes me ask the question for us today. When people look at us, whether corporately, as a gathering, as a congregation, or when they look at us individually, what do they say? Surely, these people are children of God. Or do they say something else? Do they say, surely these people belong to God? Or do they belong to something else? And I think the encounter with the strong man, with the spiritual power that he brings, changes a group. It changes us corporately. It changes us individually. And it changes us in relationship to power. There was uh, an interview last month in the Atlantic magazine with a prominent pastor. And he was asked about the relationship between power and Christians today. Many evangelical Christians, he said, had in a previous generation looked to take back the culture for God and to put people in positions of power to take back the culture for God. But more recently, their strategy had changed. And for many evangelical Christians, the tactic was to look to a protector or a chief, someone who would defend them from the evil forces of the culture. And in the interview, he said both strategies are wrong. Both strategies are dealing with power, and they're asking, they're asking the question, how do we use our power to live life the way we want? And there's not enough discussion in contemporary society about how do we use our power to serve, to serve the common good, to serve others. And so he suggests a third way, a way of faithful presence. Not diluting, not distorting, not twisting biblical truth, the faith that is once for all given to the saints, but by the same token, radical self-sacrifice within the community, within the city, within the culture. Well, how, how do people move towards faithful presence? Well, I think the way collectively they move is if individually, there is an intense encounter with a strong man, an intense encounter that asks us, how well equipped am I? How much intimacy do I have? How much identity do I have? How much industry do I have? What does it look like? Where do I grow in that? How can I grow in wisdom this year? Not be like a Solomon who starts wise and becomes a fool, but be like a Job who starts wise and becomes even more wise. How can I change this year in my life, in my direction? Or in terms of being delivered, are there things in your life that you need to be delivered of? 
demons, whether literal demons or metaphorical demons, demons of drink or alcohol or, or drugs or something else. Or perhaps there are idols, as Israel was in the idolatrous city of Babylon. There are idols today of approval, of comfort, of security and power. Idols that control and grip us, that we need to be delivered from. Are there things in our life, in your life, that you need to be delivered from to experience the power of the strong man today? And are there ways in that your life, your ordinary life, needs to be recentered? The center of gravity needs to change so that the strong man is the center. He's the center, whether we like it or not, whether we admit, admit it or confess it or not. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians 13, to be sure, he was crucified in weakness. The strong man pours out his power. The strong man rules people not by torturing them, but by pouring out his power. Yet he lives by God's power. The resurrection is the power. And then he says, likewise, we are weak in him. We, we who are on the Jerusalem road, we who are part of new Israel, we who are on the way to the new Jerusalem, we are weak in him, fragile, frail, prone to wander. We are weak in him, yet by God's power, we will live with him. That intimacy is there. We will live with him to serve you. This, this is spiritual power following the strong man to the cross, through the resurrection, into the world, and the world will never be the same. Let's bow our heads and pray.